right, well, good morning. Welcome to Redeemer. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are going through Luke. Um, set that there. Uh, and so we're going to finish uh, Luke 12 over the next coming weeks. Um, and then, so just to let you know, in two weeks, uh, so was that October 22nd, uh, is our celebration Sunday. And I think Tyler will announce that more here in a second. But I just want to double announce it just so it's on your radar. When we do our celebration Sundays now, we go out to Couch Park where we met kind of during 2020, during the pandemic. And um, so we already have it reserved. Uh, that'll be a time for baptisms, baby dedications, uh, new members if we have that. We have, so lots of different things we can do uh, that day. And so Tyler will share more about that here in a second. I want to get that on your radar uh, over these next couple of weeks just to be thinking about. Um, so we're in Luke 12, uh, just this one section uh, on you must be ready, verses 35 through 48. Now, I'm, I'm a product of the passion movement. Um, and the reason I call it a movement is because the passion conferences have had a great deal of impact on Christianity in America since 1997 when it began. When it began in 97, it began with a verse uh, out of Isaiah. Called, it was Isaiah 26, 8. Uh, and in the NIV, it says this, Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth, we wait eagerly for you, for your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. I attended my first Passion Conference in 1998. So in 97 it started. In 1998 I went as a high school senior. So it was high school seniors up to I think like 25 year olds. Uh, it was mostly a college student conference. Uh, but I went and I remember when I was there they talked about this verse a lot. And I committed to memory that verse. Uh, Isaiah 26, 8. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth, we wait eagerly for you. For your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. And there was, there's the call of the passion movement was to raise up a generation who would seek God, who would walk in his truths, who would wait eagerly for him, and that the, the desire of their hearts would be his name and his renown. The phrase that always stuck out to me, though, was this phrase, wait eagerly. Uh, it sounds like an oxymoron to me. It doesn't seem like, you know, when you wait, you're supposed to just wait, right? This is what I've always been taught about patience, is you just kind of wait patiently, you just sit there and be still and just wait. Maybe that's because that's what I learned as a kid because I was maybe a little more hyperactive. And so this was what I was taught waiting was, was the opposite of what I normally do when I wait. And so you just sit quietly, don't say a word, wait till you're called. Whatever it was, that's what I grew up thinking waiting was. So to hear the word wait eagerly, I thought, okay, waiting's hard enough. How do you wait eagerly? Like, how do you sit still and in your heart going, I'm so eager, I'm so eager. It's like, I mean, that, like for a person like me that's really passionate, like I would just explode in my seat. It's just not going to happen, right? So I didn't understand uh, <laughs> how that works, but really what I didn't understand was this idea of waiting. Uh, and I didn't understand it in the Bible. Waiting is not an American virtue. I think we all know this. Let's be honest. Right? Most of us are terrible at waiting. We're terrible at patience. I don't doubt for a second that there are some of you in here that are probably really good at waiting. Uh, I think that's completely entirely possible. You know people in your life that you're like, man, that is a patient person. Like, you know those folks, but even for them, they have their limits, right? Um, and so we live in a culture that fosters the urgent, the immediate, the impulsive. Slowing things down costs us too much. Uh, usually, that, and I mean that in like a financial sense, right? Uh, we can't slow things down. A great example of that was the pandemic. Uh, when it hit in March 2020, I mean, it was, it was everybody on deck for 15 days. Let's 15 days to bend the curve. And that was about as much patience as we had, 15 days. And then it was like, why are we back to normal? Ah! And everyone just lost it. 
There was a collective losing it. But this was even before the digital age. This is how this country has been. It's kind of in a fast pace. But with the rise of the internet, smartphones, social media, we've become even more fast paced. And there really is, and I would say, I would argue over the last few years, especially even more so, there really is this kind of resting anxiety over all of us. Mark Sayers in his book, A Non-Anxious Presence, uh, describes our age today as an anxious age. And it's not just an American anxiety. It is an anxious age across the world. In fact, what he argues is that we are in a gray zone. We're between two eras. There's an ending of one era and a new era is beginning. And we're in the between. Uh, and what that means is that power structures haven't been established yet. Who's going to have the dominance? Who's going to have all this? Uh, so everything kind of when the era before is coming to an end and this new era is rising. And we're kind of in the in-between. And it's an anxious age for all of us. Uh, if you look at any statistical analysis, whatever, they're saying that people are struggling with anxiety and depression at rates we've not seen before. Suicide rates are really high. They've been that way consistently for a while, pre-pandemic. Uh, they've done studies to show that during the pandemic, while people argued that they were going higher, they actually were not. Uh, in many ways, they had lowered to a certain extent, but that was a big push to say, we've got to open up because people are killing. And it's like, no, that actually wasn't happening at all. It was still happening, but the reality is it was already really high to begin with. It's been this way for a while now. We're in an anxious age. And if you're one that is not struggling with anxiety at some level, I hope that's true for you. <laughs> I hope you're not just pushing it down and suppressing it and not acknowledging it. But our passage today is about waiting. I've titled the sermon, Wait Eagerly, which really comes from Isaiah 26, 8. So you're not going to find that, those words in here necessarily, but you'll see the concept and the word eagerly is the key I want to focus, the word I want to focus it on. Uh, waiting, we think of waiting, we think like waiting room at a doctor's office or waiting in line. For us, mostly waiting is just a passing of the time, right? You're on your phone, you're watching something, you're talking to someone, you're just kind of passing the time. But that's not what it means to wait eagerly. And that word eagerly is going to be our clue. Waiting in the Bible typically is another word that could be interchanged for it is hope. And the hope that it talks of in the Bible is not a hope that's a wishful thinking. It's a confident looking forward to something that has been promised, something good that's been promised that is ours and will be ours. And so this kind of waiting is not an idle waiting. <clears throat> uh, it's not idle. It's not just kind of passing the time. That wouldn't be eager waiting if we were idle. This is active and anticipatory. So when you wait for a child to be born, right, what are you doing? You're actively setting up space for a baby. You're getting checkups. You're getting clothes ready. You're getting diapers. You're getting other needed items and all the things that are needed to prepare for the child's arrival. This is the type of waiting, it gets close anyway, to the type of waiting we're talking about today. The reason I say it gets close and they're not exactly the same is because this type of waiting that we're talking about today comes with a guaranteed promise. We're waiting for something that we are promised and guaranteed from God himself and so there will not be heartbreak and mourning at the end, whereas you have a child, there is no promise that that child will actually be born. And there can be brokenness and mourning as we wait. I looked up the waiting eagerly. I looked up uh, what it said, and it said a synonym of it was anxiously waiting, waiting anxiously. And I thought this was interesting because right before this in, in uh, Luke 12, Jesus just tells his disciples, do not be anxious about what you'll wear, what you'll eat. He's telling them, don't be anxious. He says it again later on. He says, don't be worried even. Remember we talked about that kind of panic, that anxiety of free falling from the sky without a parachute. Like what would you be feeling in that moment? You've lost all control. And he's saying, don't worry, don't be like that. And he tells us to seek the kingdom of God. That God is, it's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Don't worry about what you're gonna eat or what you're gonna wear. He's gonna take care of all those things. And so we have this promise from God 
<clears throat> but he talks about anxiety, right? This anxiousness that they're going to feel or they could feel. And he says, don't be anxious. Eagerness and anxiety probably look the same uh, on the surface, but there are differences. Anxious waiting is about worry and uncertainty, whereas eager waiting is about a longing or desire for what is guaranteed to come. <clears throat> Both who wait eagerly and those who wait anxiously are desiring something very much. The difference is that the one who anxiously is awaiting is never at rest. They're never sure what they long, or that they're going to get what they long for. They're frustrated when things don't go according to plan, and they live with a general unease. Fear becomes the driving force in their lives. While one waiting eagerly can find rest knowing that what they long for will be theirs. Even when things fall apart, when there is unease, when there is uncertainty. And hope is the driving force of their lives. And again, this hope is not wishful thinking, but a confident assurance of what is ours. Hope and waiting go together. And we shouldn't be surprised that the world is not asking us to give a defense for the hope that we have when we live as anxiously as they do. Let's read what Jesus says here, starting in verse 35. We'll read 35 through 40. We'll break this up into two sections. Jesus says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. All right, the first verse here is key. Stay dressed. But for what? For action. Stay dressed for action. He says, keep your lamps burning. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return so they can open the door upon his arrival. Waiting eagerly for Jesus' return is the main focus of this whole thing that's going on here. It's not passive, it's active, and we are to wait eagerly, uh, not as those passing the time doing whatever it is we want to do, but we're to be dressed and ready for action. I want to read from 1 Peter here, because Peter's basically going to say the same thing, and then he's going to expound on what Jesus said in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. Listen to this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time here of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, who was, or he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through, uh, through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter's saying the same thing that Jesus is saying here. Being dressed and ready is what Peter is talking about in preparing your minds for action. Being sober-minded. Setting your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to us when Jesus Christ, uh, that'll be ours when Jesus Christ is revealed. So be dressed and ready. Keep the lights on. Uh, be like those waiting for the master's return. Or like Peter said here, be obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but be holy as he is holy. 
You see, servants would have been expected to do certain things in preparation for their master's arrival. They had jobs at the house. They were expected to do them. The master should not be left at the door knocking to get into his own house. They should be prepared and ready and welcome him in when he returns. Now, don't forget this is a parable, okay? This is a parable, so don't dig too deep into this and try to make it say things it's not saying. Luke wrote this section uh, right before this section, calling his disciples to not be anxious about what they'll eat and wear, but to seek first the kingdom of God. They don't need to fear, for God has given them the kingdom, and he will give them all that they need. This is what Jesus has just said to his disciples. So we know that this doesn't mean to sit idly by uh, or just kind of wait for God to do everything for you. This is not a call to laziness. When he says, do not be anxious about what you'll eat or wear, he's not saying, just sit back, relax, and watch God do it all for you. We have an active participation in the kingdom of God. Jesus is speaking now of his going away and his coming back, and he's preparing his disciples for this. And he's teaching that he's going to physically leave, and in his physical absence, there are things we need to do. And I want to emphasize the physical absence, because Jesus hasn't actually left us. He says, I'm with you to the very end of the age. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He's also given us the Holy Spirit, who we know is with us to help us walk through these things. We're not left to our own devices to try to figure this out. Jesus is specifically speaking of his triumphant return to earth in his physical body. And while Jesus is away, there's work for us to do. <clears throat> and it involves our whole person, body, soul, mind, and strength. This should shut down this popular notion that you just get saved, die, and go to heaven. And what happens between you getting saved and going to heaven doesn't really matter. It does matter. Salvation is not just spiritual. It is about wholeness. It's about being made whole in Christ in heart, soul, mind, and body. And it's not just about your individual person, but about the world that we live in too. There is work for Christians to do while Jesus is away we're to be ready, dressed for action, lights on, doing what he has called us and commanded us to do until he returns. And then when Jesus returns, what happens? Now, don't miss this. Please, please turn to verse 37. I want you to see this for yourself. Because I think I've never heard this until I started studying for this. Like, I, this has kind of been glossed over, I think, most of my life. And mostly probably because when you get to these passages, it's like, I, you know, I feel like I need to put up a, a drawing of how the end times are playing out right now and what's happening. Did y'all watch this on the news last night? You know, 49 nothing. That's a sign that the Lord is coming. <laughs> so, so I had to egg on OU somehow in there, right? They lost 49 to nothing yesterday, just so everybody is aware of what's going on. But we didn't lose. Um, so the end is near, if that means anything. No, so I think we missed this, but look at verse 37. I want you to see this. This is amazing. Jesus says this, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Here's the part I want you to pay attention to because he starts it off with truly, this is important. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Did you hear that? <laughs> Jesus just said that when he comes back and he finds those servants awake that are ready, they're prepared for action, they've been ready for his return, they've been working and serving and all these things. When he comes back, he's going to put on the servants' clothes. He's going to send us to go recline at the table and then he's going to come in and serve us. This would have been unheard of for masters to do with their servants. 
But let's think a little bit bigger here. You get that there's not one religion on the planet where their God or gods stoop to become servants of their own creation and serve them, right? Like we get that. And this isn't just talking about, oh, this is just the parable and the master of that. No, Jesus is pointing to the end when he returns. He's still going to be a servant. In Luke 22, Jesus says these words, that he did not come to, serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What this is pointing to is that for all eternity, Jesus, the God-man, is going to serve his bride. He's going to serve us. That's why that phrase, truly I say to you, that's not a throwaway phrase. That's a really important phrase. It's jam-packed full of meaning. He is saying this is absolutely true and this is absolutely going to happen. But this is consistent with what Jesus taught, right? Jesus taught that the greatest in the kingdom of God is who? The servant. And this absolutely flies in the face of everything we teach here in America. And I'm not just talking about broader society, even in the church. I mean, if we took this seriously, you get that there would never be such a thing as a celebrity pastor. What we've done, though, is we've created this idea called servant leadership. Uh-oh. Like, I feel like the other day I was ripping on Billy Graham rule, now servant leadership, and all the 90s youth kids in here are like, oh, come on. You're just going to destroy the 90s? Yes, except for hip-hop and R&B in the 90s. We should not remember anything from the 90s. And we need that to come back, because today's hip-hop. Anyway. Servant leadership. And here's the idea, right? Here was the idea of servant leadership. How do we take this to what Jesus literally says? When he says the greatest in the kingdom of God is a servant, that word literally is a slave, a bond servant. Now, how do we make sense of that today? If I'm supposed to be the leader up here and you're going, well, you don't look like a slave. You don't look like a bond servant. Aha, he means to have a, the heart of a servant. Right, there it is. That's what he was getting at, servant leadership. See how I'm always serving and doing all these things? I'm a leader, but I have a heart of a servant. Jesus is little. And we, like, sometimes we don't need to over-spiritualize Jesus and manipulate his friend. We need to take him at face value. And he's saying, no, the servant. And Jesus is the example. Nobody's questioning whether or not Jesus is the leader in the church. If we are, we got some serious problems. But how is he leading? By serving. That's why when the master gets home, he says, go recline at the table. And he puts on the servant's clothes and he comes in and waits on us. And serves us. What is going on? Like this is so backwards from the way we do everything in society. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom. We don't need to question that. And what is he doing? He's serving. Not in a leadership position with a servant heart. No, he becomes the servant. He puts on servant clothes and he serves them. And we will serve one another as Jesus serves us for all eternity. And here we start to have a clue of what it looks like for us to wait eagerly for Jesus's return. It's not just about obeying his commands to obey his commands. It's about becoming like Jesus, who is servant of all. We wait eagerly, listen to this, we wait eagerly for Jesus by giving ourselves to others, serving them, being generous, not storing up treasures on earth, but trusting God and living generous, merciful servant lives here. Blessed are those, Jesus says, that he finds awake. Even at the second and third watch would have been the middle of the night. That they weren't sleeping. And that's when they would have expected to be sleeping. 
But they're eagerly waiting. They're anticipating. They're active. They know he's coming. They know he's coming and they're ready. They're blessed if they're awake. Now, we know they have no idea when he's returning. So Jesus gives this kind of mini parable in here where he talks about if the master knew when the thief was coming, he wouldn't leave his house. Right? And what he's basically saying there is if the servants knew that the, the master was coming home at 3 a.m., of course they're going to be awake and ready. But they don't know when he's going to come. Why would they be awake at 3 a.m. for any other reason if, than if they knew he was coming? It's because they're anticipating and they're expecting him to come. They're eager for his arrival and they stay vigilant and ready for him. So Jesus says in verse 40, you must also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, <clears throat> being ready for his return has nothing to do with end times prophecies. Like, so, like just do yourself a favor and never go to YouTube and type in end times anything. Like, it's not, it just, it won't end well. Now, if you're, if you can do it and not be swayed by what you're seeing, and it's, it's pretty swayable, it's persuasive, um, then maybe you can go do it for research for a doctoral thing or something. Other than that, don't do it. <laughs> it it's, I promise you, because every end times prophecy you read right now, somehow, somehow, whatever's happening in America is the centerpiece of all of it. And America didn't even exist when Revelation was written. I don't know. So just whatever. Go watch it if you want, but I'm just going to encourage you, don't do it. Be ready for Jesus' return. It has nothing to do with trying to figure out when he's coming, where he's coming from, which direction we need to be looking. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with becoming preppers. We don't need to become preppers. In fact, waiting for Jesus is the exact opposite. It has more to do with giving away than holding back for yourself. And why would we live like this? Why would we be really generous, sacrificial, humble servants of one another and others? Because our confidence and assurance, our hope is that Jesus will return and make all things new. Because we trust the Lord to provide for our needs and because he's already given us the kingdom. He's not left us alone, but has given us the Holy Spirit. If we wait anxiously, we will begin to hold things back, store up for ourselves, and be self-serving, right? We have to protect what's ours because of an unknown future. And while we long for Jesus' return, we're uneasy with the uncertainty of it, and thus we're constantly anxious about how much to give or not give, how much to serve or not serve, how much to share or not share, how much to help others or not help others, and on and on and on. And we become like the person from the parable of the talents who's given one talent and just hid it in fear of the master. Being ready for Jesus' return is reflected in our generosity and our service to others. Jesus has shown us the way of the kingdom. Be ready, be dressed for action, leave the lights on, be awake and ready. Jesus will return, but at a time when we do not expect. Now enter Peter. Luke's the only one that records a response from Peter. If you go read the Matthew and Mark accounts of this same text, you're not going to see Peter interjecting. But Peter speaks up here, and this is interesting that Luke records this. In verse 41, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Hey, let's just stop there because that's the question. Peter, Peter's listening to this, to all the disciples. And Peter, when he spoke up, usually is speaking on behalf of all the apostles, right? And, and maybe all the disciples. And Peter's asking this question because he's going, who's this for? So he's a little bit confused, right? And notice, Jesus doesn't really, he kind of sort of answers his question and kind of sort of doesn't answer his question. In typical Jesus fashion, he answers his question with a question. He is answering the question, 
But, but we have to kind of dig to kind of understand what's going on here, how, how he's answering this question. So notice what Jesus does with his answer, his question answer thing here. He's now starting to speak of faithful and wise managers who were servants placed over the household. Okay? So pay attention to that. He's not just speaking of servants now. He's speaking of servants who have been placed over the household. They would become a manager, administrative position. And here's the question. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Managers were servants who were elevated to an administrative position over the household. They were granted this authority and responsibility from the master. To understand Jesus' answer to Peter, we need to see this whole parable, okay? And you're going to find three types of servants in here. The faithful and wise, the abusive, and the ignorant servant. The question Jesus asked is, who is the faithful and wise manager? So that's really the answer here. What Jesus is going to answer Peter is, he's basically talking about them. That's what the answer is. Like, was well, is this for us or for, the, for everyone? But it's not specifically just them. And, and that's why I think Jesus answers this, uh, his answer or his question with a question as he's trying to get him to think broader here. Don't just think about you, Peter. I'm not going to answer and say, yeah, it's directly for you. Because if Jesus says, yeah, this is just for you, Peter. This is just for you, 12. Then all of us can kind of step out on this one. So I think Jesus is trying to open the door here for this is not just for you, but it is for you. It's not less than you, but it's also more. The question Jesus asks is about this faithful, wise manager, the servant who is found to be caring for and serving the household when the master's return, uh, when he returns, will be placed over all his possessions. Jesus says this servant is blessed. Now, some want to make what Jesus is saying here separate from what he's just said about waiting and being ready. Some say the first part is about waiting and watching, and this uh, second part here is about working. I guess for a three-point sermon with, the words, uh, with words starting with the letter W, it makes for a great three-point sermon. Now, I think those folks are ultimately getting at the same thing. I don't think we're saying anything different. The problem I have with it, for me anyway, is that it compartmentalizes what shouldn't be compartmentalized. Watching while waiting is not one thing, while, and working while waiting another thing. This is all getting at the same thing here. And I think Jesus' answer here shows us that. He's expounding on what he said to Peter. He's not bringing up something different. Now, not all servants are made household managers. That would be ridiculous, right? If you had 15 servants and said, all of you are managers, <laughs> nothing's getting done. We just all became managers and we're all managing the household, but we're all managing who now? We're all managers of each other, but we're not managing each other at all. So not all managers of a house, not all servants become managers. Now, again, Luke is the only one that records Peter's response here. I believe that Jesus' answer to Peter is about those who will lead in the church, his church. And I think it's important that we understand the church is Jesus's. So, like, when you say, I go to so and so's church, stop saying that. Like, I know what you mean, and, I, and I'm not, you're not in sin. Like, God's not going to come down and smite you because you said that after I said this. He could, but that's not because I said anything. That might be some other sin in your life. But <clears throat> I'm just saying, you, you don't go to someone else's church. Like, it, it pains me when people are like, oh, yeah, yo, I go to Brian's church. Never say that, at least not when I'm around. Because be, it'll be a gentle rebuke. Like my mom used to, where she'd pinch me right up here in the shoulder and tie just, I'm just kidding, I would never... I would never do that because I hated that so much, so much, especially in Target when she wanted me to try on clothes right in the middle of Target. It's one thing when you're three. It's another thing when you're 12. 
Can I go to the fitting room, Mom? Nope. Shoulder. <laughs> and there I am in my underwear going, come on, people. You've seen this. Move on. Move on. It's a true story. I know you all think I'm making that up, but it's a true story. I'm not. Lizzie, you don't even understand. I have a rough childhood. <clears throat> so here's the thing. Some will argue that Jesus is talking about Jews and Gentiles. This is what some of the commentaries say. They're speaking of Jews and Gentiles, those who believe and don't believe in the Messiah. Some think that Jesus is speaking of Jews, Gentiles, and the church. Uh, and a lot of them do this based on the next two things he's going to say about these servants, the punishments that they receive. Here's why I think it's talking about leaders in the church, okay? And why I think he's answering Peter by saying, I'm, I am speaking of you, Peter, and the disciples, but not just you. It's going to go uh, in, throughout history. Luke 12, 22 says this, and he said to his disciples... So Luke is informing us right there that he is writing down words. What he's saying next, Jesus was saying to his disciples. Okay, so context matters here. There is no break in who Jesus is talking to until Peter interrupts with a question here. So Luke understands it as he said to his disciples and he's writing all this until he introduces us to Peter and his question. So until Peter asks this question, nothing about the audience changes. Contextually, to me, it appears that Jesus is speaking and talking to his disciples, which would probably be more than the 12 apostles, um, but it's at least them. Now, Jesus' answer to Peter almost seems like he's dismissing his question, while at the same time making clear that he, uh, Peter, and the others have a, been given a great responsibility. As if to say, you're not just servants, but you are servants that have been made managers of the household while I'm gone. Thus the question, who then is the faithful and wise manager and blessed is the servant doing these things when the master returns? And the implication is that those who are faithful stewards with what they were given here will be entrusted more when the, in the life to come. But there's a warning. And this ties back to the Pharisees. Jesus warns the servant saying, my master is delayed in coming and he begins to beat his male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. In the Matthew account of this parable, Jesus is recorded as saying the wicked servant will be cast out with the hypocrites. And we'll get to the punishment here in a second, but I want to highlight the hypocrite piece here for just a second. Now notice how Jesus introduces different servants here, uh, but he's really speaking of the same servant. He says, but if that servant, what servant? The one he's just said is blessed for caring for and feeding them at the proper time, right? And taking care of the servants. This servant is thus the faithful and wise manager. But if this manager says to himself, okay, so we have the same servant, so pay attention to what's going on. He talks about blessed is the servant who his master is fine doing all this when he comes. Truly I say to you, he'll set him over all his possessions. But then he says, but if that servant, same servant, he's not introducing us to another servant now. He's introducing us, so the servant's gonna represent, I think, multiple things here, uh, these household managers. But he's saying, if one is appointed a household manager, if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. If that servant is not faithful and wise as a manager of the household, if what he decides to do is kind of become the master himself, he says he's gone, he hasn't come back, and this manager who knows what his master's desire is decides to use his position as a means for self-gratification and lording it over the other servants, which very much ties to his self-seeking. This manager has now chosen to be a faux master, a pretender. He plays master over that which is not his. He abuses, he takes, and he pleases only himself. 
What happens when the master arrives at a time he does not expect? Jesus says, the master will cut him to pieces and put him with the unfaithful, or as Matthew said, the hypocrites. In many ways, this is how the Pharisees were leading Israel. Remember my sermon from a couple weeks ago about hypocrisy being duplicity. The Pharisees ultimately worshiped and were devoted to themselves. They abused others. They put heavy burdens on them. They kept the keys from the kingdom of God from others, and they were self-serving. They, the warning of the disciples here is to not be foolish like the Pharisees. And if they are, then they prove that they belong to them. They prove they never belong to Jesus. What Jesus is basically saying here is, I think, that going forward in the church, there are going to be those that are like the Pharisees were in Israel. There are going to be some that are appointed managers that are going to be putting heavy burdens on people and keeping them from the kingdom of God with all their rules and regulations. They're going to be locking them out of the kingdom of God. They're going to be deceiving them. They're going to be profiting off of them. They're going to be abusing them, manipulating them, and lording it over them. Jesus expounds on this a bit more in verse 47. Look at what verse 47 says. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. That servant knew his master's will, but he didn't get ready and didn't act according to his will. Do you see how getting ready and obeying God's will and way are connected? The servant knew his master's will, but he chose to live <clears throat> counter to his master's will. This servant's actions and decisions turned the household into a place of confusion and chaos, fear and oppression and injustice, which brought shame and dishonor on the master. And the master, when he returned, brought justice, justice for this wicked manager. He knew his master's will, but he chose his own way to be his own master or Lord. This servant will receive a severe beating. Jesus says he'll be cut to pieces and placed with the hypocrites or the unfaithful. Now, some have said that phrase, cut to pieces, uh, literally means like disassociated with, disconnected. They're like, don't take it literally cut to pieces. Most, most say that it literally means cut to pieces. <laughs> That'll be a good lunch discussion. I'm not answering that. Don't get lost. It's a parable. Don't, don't think too deeply here, okay? He's using language that they would have understood that we don't understand. The point is that there's judgment coming for the wicked master. But Jesus says, the one who did not know did what deserved a beat, but did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Now let's talk about these beatings for a second. This sounds rough. Like I think most of us understand the abusive manager getting severe punishment, severe judgment. But we're likely to have a harder time with the one who doesn't know his master's will, but does something deserving of a beating anyway and just gets a lighter beating. Again, remember that this is a parable. So I'm going to get, dig too deep here and get lost in the weeds and make it say things it's not saying. The last verse is going to bring all this together and help us understand it. The big picture here is about judgment and accountability. God is a just judge. He is a merciful judge too. The manager whose disobedience was willful and intentional will be judged rightly by God. There's no talking your way out of it. There's no pretending you didn't know. The one who didn't know but still obeyed will also be judged, but with a lighter punishment. Why are they still judged? Well, for one, they could have uh, and should have probably took it upon themselves to learn what their master's will was. What this sounds similar to is James 3.1. Listen to this. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that he, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Jesus sums up what he's been saying in this parable here in verse 48. Look at what he says. The last part of 48. Everyone to whom much is, was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. 
Those who are given positions of authority and power uh, are to be held to higher standards than everyone else. The accountability, the judgment are more severe for those than others. When you are given much, whether that be resources, knowledge, positions of power and influence, then much more is required of you. And when you are entrusted with much, whether that be resources, knowledge, positions of power and influence, then much more will be demanded of you. This statement applies to many things, but I believe Jesus is speaking specifically here to leaders in the church. We are at a time in our culture where uh, really there's an increasing disdain for church leadership. Not all church leaders, but more specifically pastors, elders, ministry leaders, etc., And I guess you could say uh, the top leadership positions in Christian churches and organizations. As a pastor, let me just say quite a bit of it is warranted. My guess is some of you probably think I'm about to defend pastors and other leaders. I'm not going to defend them, nor am I going to offend them. What I will say is that Jesus is absolutely right, and we're seeing it playing out right now. Those in leadership have been given much and entrusted with much, and much more is required and demanded of them. Do I believe that some are unfairly treated? Yes, I absolutely believe some are being unfairly treated. And I mean this though in two different ways. Some are being punished and held to standards that are completely unrealistic, while others are unfairly treated, not being held to higher standards and not being punished. Both are unfair treatments. But don't get lost in all that right now. My point is twofold. One, according to what Jesus is saying here, those in leadership in the church will face stricter judgment and accountability. And two, because that is true, We should be much slower and wiser about appointing people to leadership positions, as well as slowing ourselves down a bit too. We cringe today at terms like power and authority, but those are not bad things. Can they be used for evil? Yes. Can they be used for good? Also yes. Power and authority are neutral things, but the person who holds either of these can make or break it. Remember this whole passage is coming around waiting eagerly for Jesus' return. And the focus is on what we're doing while waiting eagerly for him. <clears throat> and the, uh, we wait for him, meaning our hope, right? Our hope's in Christ and his promised return. We do not lose hope. Um, that's one aspect of waiting for him. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm not good at reading my own stuff sometimes. We don't lose hope because that is one aspect of waiting. Hope and waiting go together. But why are we waiting, hoping for his return? Because we belong to him by faith. We trust him alone for salvation, and thus we belong to his household now. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're not hopeful for his return, and nor are you looking for it. And why would you anyway? It's going to be a dreadful day anyway. So we who trust Jesus as Lord and Savior wait for his promised return eagerly. Our waiting is not looking to the sky idly or passing the time doing whatever we feel like doing. No, we wait by doing what he's called us to do. We wait eagerly by serving, giving, loving, praying, caring for one another's burdens, encouraging one another, teaching one another, sharing with one another, honoring one another, etc. And we wait eagerly for those by serving the needy, the poor, caring for those in prison, the sick, the hungry, and the thirsty. We do this because we realize salvation is not all about us. None of this is about us. We belong to Jesus and his body, the church. And he's called us to shine like stars in the world. So we do not hoard things to ourselves, nor do we hoard things within the church. Rather, as we have freely received, we freely give to all who ask. And the managers, those that Jesus calls to care for and serve his household, should be faithful and wise managers, giving food to others at the proper time. Managers are not to be untouchable or unapproachable. And they are not to be viewed as more important than others. They are servants too. 
They have been tasked with a greater responsibility than others might have. And with that comes greater accountability, greater judgment, greater requirements, and greater demands. This doesn't mean that other fellow servants should mistreat or abuse leaders either. We're all to be faithful and wise with what we've been given. It doesn't matter if it's in leadership role in the church or not. And we're all to wait eagerly for Jesus' return together. So let me ask you some questions here. How are you doing being like the faithful and wise servant or manager? Are you dressed and ready for action? Lights on, eagerly waiting for Jesus' return. Or are you anxiously waiting? Are you distracted and bothered by many things which are keeping you from finding rest in Jesus and living in light of his coming return? Jesus is going to return. How will he find us? Awake and ready? Sleeping and unprepared? Awake but abusing others and being self-seeking? Do you know what it means to be prepared and ready for his return? Do you sense the Holy Spirit calling you into leadership in the church? Man, if that's you, come talk to me. I'd love to talk about that. Do you know how to be faithful with what the Lord has given you? Like, do you understand that the nine to five that you have isn't just something to make money so that the church has money or missionaries? You know you're not God's ATM machine for the church, right? Your nine to five matters more to the kingdom than maybe my own work does. Maybe I should say that again. Your nine to five matters more to the kingdom of God than my own work does. Do you know how to be faithful with what the Lord's given you? Are you being faithful? When you see sin and disobedience, do you hide it and cover it up and everything? Or do you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ that says, come, <laughs> confess your sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness? That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing to fear when you belong to Jesus today. Listen, one day Jesus is going to return. And when he does, he's going to dress himself as a servant and have us recline at the table and then come in and serve us. Who is this us? The blessed servants that Jesus finds awake when he comes. The blessed servants who are serving others, being generous and sacrificial with their money and possessions toward others, who are caring for the weak, the broken, the sick, the lonely, and the outcast. In short, those who are walking in the way of Jesus. They're not idle. They're not busybodies. They're not lazy. They're none of that. They're those who are waiting eagerly for Jesus' return, like he's going to return and make all things new. They live like they have already been given the kingdom because Jesus said it was the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And they live like God is going to provide for our needs. So we're free to seek his kingdom and store our treasures in heaven and not on earth. We have much to confess and repent of in regards to these things. And Jesus is gracious and forgiving and will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He is and will one day soon finally make us whole. So trust Jesus and by the Holy Spirit may we become more like Jesus in this world as we wait eagerly for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these words that Luke wrote for us. That here 2,000 years later we're getting to read what Luke wrote down as a testimony to who Christ is, to the context and the people of his day, having no idea if 2,000 years later there would even be uh, people on the planet, if things would already all be made new, if Jesus would have already returned. And yet here we are today reading these ancient words 
And the same Holy Spirit who was illuminating and speaking through him and writing these things is the same Holy Spirit in this room today and in our hearts today by faith in Christ that illuminates our hearts and minds to understand. Jesus, you have called us to something very countercultural to the world and culture we currently live in. And that's not going to change 100 years from now or 200 years from now. You will always be calling. Your scriptures are always calling us to something counter to what the world is doing. I think about that phrase in Peter where he says, always be, or, or maybe it's Paul, it says, always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. We've turned apologetics into intellectual arguments and debates, but that's not what that's about. It's being prepared to give a defense for the hope that you have because it's not going to make sense to people that you're still living with hope and eager expectation and waiting for Jesus when everything around us is anxiety ridden and depressing and dark and confusing. And here you are standing as a stalwart in the middle of it with losing everything, having persecution, whatever else might be happening, and yet you have this hope that cannot be moved. That's the defense they're going to ask you for. How do you still have hope? God, do we have that hope or have we become anxious like the world around us? Help us to have that hope, to live in light of that hope, to live according to that hope, to become a people that are known in this city as a generous, selfless, sacrificial, humble servant hearted, servant-minded, servant-living church that reflects the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus, who has been servant to all and will continue to serve us for all eternity. Make us more like Jesus, Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.